Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. You know it's time to call it off and give it away, Uncle Sam. Marching into other countries like you did with Iraq and Saddam. Plotting overthrows. Masterminding coups. Bumping off national leaders, putting someone else in their shoes. You say you're the world's policeman, but you just cause pain and fright. Interfering in other countries as if it's your natural birthright, but what good does it do for you? Or anyone else for that matter? Causing so much mayhem and slaughter and making innocent people scatter. With your high-minded approach that everyone must come for the ride because you're bringing them democracy and God is on your side. What? Trampling over local ground, destroying historic ways of life, impinging on their worshipping, separating husband, child and wife and then when the damage is done. At the end of this ridiculous affray, you pack your bags with all the loot, claim victory and then walk away. Well, it's still an unholy mess in Iraq. You haven't yet another go at Iran. You haven't learnt one thing at all from the disaster that was Vietnam. Since 1945, you claim to be expert in the art of war, but even the battle for Korea ended in a one-all draw. From Granada to Laos, Guatemala to Cuba, Indonesia to the Congo, from Haiti to Honduras, Liberia, Sudan, Ecuador, Brazil, the Balkans and Libya, the Philippines, Ghana, Lebanon, Nicaragua, Chile, Bolivia, the Dominican Republic, Somalia, El Salvador, Angola, Oman, Syria, Panama and seven years bombing Cambodia. Now the world shakes its head, staring at a broken Afghanistan. 20 years of dim-witted madness, strafing an already barren land. This is how it always ends. The corrupt government imploding. The army you trained collapsing. Cause you underestimated your opponent. Give it a break, United States. Learn a lesson after all these years. Give it away, trying to rule the world. Just ends in death, misery, and tears. Redistribute the nation's wealth. Forget about plundering other countries by bombing and by stealth. The world is just so tired of you as across it you maliciously roam. There's a lot of truth in the old saying that pleads, Yankee, go home. Start looking after your own people, the illiterate and the working poor, the homeless and helpless and oppressed. Knocking on charity's door. And what you just heard was Give It Away, Uncle Sam, a mixed-media poem set to music and performed by political analyst, journalist, songwriter, and self-described digital street philosopher, Caitlin Johnstone, and with the words actually written by her father, Graham Johnstone, an impassioned poem he wrote from the depth of his guts when he heard the news that the pointless tragedy that was the U.S. in Afghanistan had finally stuttered to an ignominious end. And John Stone's many works, including articles, songs, art, poetry, and video, can be found at her daily writings about the end of illusions at caitlinjones.com. And coming up next on Arts Express, actor Dennis Quaid, perhaps best known for his turn as the late rock and roll performer Jerry Lee Lewis in the biopic Great Balls of Fire, also happens to be a musician himself and spoke to Arts Express about his current tour and new album. 
along with how he came to play some other real-life figures, and this time on opposite sides of the political divide, as Bill Clinton in The Special Relationship in 2010 and his upcoming film Reagan. Quaid also delved into his diverse musical influences from Johnny Cash, Sinatra, Van Morrison and The Doors to James Brown and Marvin Gaye. And does he still perform live in his bare feet? And if so, why? Plus, memories of being part of the Hollywood 70s renaissance in movies, quote, Back in the 70s, it was a golden age of film. There was a lot of political upheaval going on, and people rethinking, who are we as a country? First, some scenes from Great Balls of Fire, then Dennis Quaid. Take a white right hand and a black left hand. And what do you got? You got rock and roll. Well, this here is my cousin, Jerry Lee Lewis. You'll probably know him from that last yeah, yeah, shaking yeah. song. Hey, girl, if you're gonna love me, honey, please don't tease. I can tell you, baby, let me scream. Well, my heart's going round and round. And my love is going to hold it down. Yeah, you leave me. Breathless, Rock and roll is the devil's music. That boy could get himself in a whole lot of trouble. You see this hand? It makes $5,000 a night. You see this one? It does too. I shine like gold when I play that piano. And I'm saying I'll play my guts out. I am Jerry Lee Lewis. Goodness gracious, quick balls of fire. So if I'm going to hell, I'm going there playing piano. Hello and welcome. Great. Hello. Okay. All right, Craig. What is your fall tour all about and described as acoustic storytelling and a journey through your film career? Please elaborate and which of your films you'll be talking about. Well, uh, that, uh, I think it includes all of my films that oh. I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been... Uh, I've been playing guitar uh, since I was 12 years old, and uh, I started playing piano uh, in my 30s when I got the role of uh, in, uh, Great Balls of Fire playing Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm. I had a year to prepare for it, and he was one of my teachers, in fact. You know, I taught him rock and roll, teaching you piano, and, uh, you know, what a great experience. And it'll be, uh, so music and movies have intertwined all throughout the decades. And this is going to be uh, a show, just me and an acoustic guitar and a piano and and the audience. And uh, I've always had a band behind me before. So this will be you know, storytelling, audience participation, and just I want people to be entertained. Now, you've portrayed quite a few real people on screen, but what can you say about political figures on opposite sides of the political divide? Bill Clinton in The Special Relationship, and now Reagan, the upcoming Reagan biopic. Well, uh, it's, both are really incredible experiences. I, uh, I, had, I had a relationship with uh, Bill Clinton, in fact, you know, back in the 90s. Uh, I spent a weekend in the White House with him. I guess I was an FOB. Uh, and I really liked him personally. And Ronald Reagan... Uh, Growing up, 
you know, from the time I was a kid, you know, following his, his political career. And uh, to, uh, to play him was quite an experience. Because when I play a real person, you know, no matter who they are, I like to find out what makes them tick. And Ronald Reagan was probably the biggest challenge because he's, in a way, kind of unknowable, uh, <laughs> come to find out, by even to even those who were closest to him. I think Nancy Reagan was probably the, the closest to him, and uh, they had an uh, all-encompassing relationship. But uh, anybody can find that out on a documentary. It was really about getting to know the person behind the persona. And I think that's the reason to go to the movie. And what can you say about your upcoming album? Uh, I'm doing a gospel record in Nashville currently, and uh, that'll, that's going to come out uh, around uh, Easter, I think, of next year. And I have a single that I wrote a love song. Uh, it's called Heartbeat. It's a very kind of moody, dreamy type of song. It's a love song without saying the word love that I wrote for my wife. And are you still performing in your bare feet? And if so, why? No, I uh, I can afford shoes now, so I <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I uh, that was something that started off early. I was you know been with the the what I was playing with my band, the Shards, been with for the last twenty years. That uh, just became kind of a kind of a thing, really, because it made me feel like I was you know, in my living room or, uh, you know, sitting around the house. And uh, so it, kind of, it kind of stuck for a while. And, but uh, I, will, I, will, I will have shoes on for this. Uh, it's kind of hard to play the piano in bare feet. you got pedals, you know. <laughs> and your musical inspirations you've cited include The Beatles, The Doors, and James Brown. How so? Well, uh, my first influences were really... Uh, uh, was Johnny Cash. So when I picked up the guitar uh, at 12, I tried to learn Light My Fire was the first song I tried to learn because it, it was also out at, the, at that time. That kind of dates me. And it's a, it's a very difficult song to, especially for a beginning guitar player. So I found myself gravitating towards Johnny Cash and I, I just love that man. And, you know, he was a storyteller with his songs and he, he, really kind of transcended um, it transcended uh, anybody did uh, everyone every strata loves his music I think because you can relate with it yeah but the, yeah, at the same time it was the Beatles and uh, Van Morrison who I love the doors I I, I love James Brown I, I love Marvin Gaye and so I've had, I've had kind of an eclectic uh, upbringing as far as music goes. I love Frank Sinatra, too. And you once said about working in television, quote, what's going on in television reminds me of what was going on in the 70s, where the inmates have kind of taken over the asylum. Please explain. Yeah. <laughs> well, back in the 70s, it was a very, it was a golden age, I think, of film. Mm, yeah. yeah. There was, you know, before that, there were these kind of Loaded, uh, uh, loaded big productions. There are some good movies too, but but uh, I think the studios had kind of lost their audience, and it was also a lot of political upheaval uh, going on, and and people rethinking who are we, you know, as as a country and everything. And you had a lot of movies that were, you know, the anti-hero was there, and um, it did feel like you know they were breaking barriers back then and it did feel like the inmates had taken over the asylum and uh, you know then uh, you had the age of the movie star and the age of the producer and, and stuff and now uh, we've just movies have, are kind of acting, asking again who are we and where are we and streaming has, has come along just you know just like television came along and you know the movies had to react that and streaming is coming along, and it's a, it's a different landscape, and they're making so much product that it is it is a golden age. It's mm -hmm. kind of boutique now. You know, there's a there's a 
something for every audience. You don't need mm-hmm. to have such a huge audience. You can have a smaller audience and, and still get your product out there. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful time, really. Okay, thank you, Dennis Quaid, for calling into our show. Thank you. And more information about what Quaid has been up to is online at DennisQuaidIsHere.com. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Vonnegut. The preeminent novelist of our time, Kurt Vonnegut. Do you really know the answers to everything? What would you like to know? What? I was 23 when I first approached him about making this film. I became obsessed. Then there was a letter. Dear Robert Whitey. Holy crap. He was opening up about his childhood. 10 years old, I pointed up and said, there is Trout Famador. His experience in Dresden. We all came out and the city was gone. We become friends. If you find your life tangled up with somebody else's, that person may be a member of your caress. When you take almost 40 years to make a film, you owe some kind of an explanation. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Kurt Vonnegut was one of America's most well-known and popular novelists of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and all of his humorous and fantastical novels are still in print today. Certainly, if you were a college student of that era, you probably know lines from Vonnegut novels by heart. Now, producer, director, and writer Robert Whitey, who has won awards for his documentaries on Lenny Bruce, W.C. Fields, and his directing work on Curb Your Enthusiasm, has come out with a new documentary on Kurt Vonnegut, which includes Mr. Whitey's personal relationship to Vonnegut. I'm happy to have as our guest the writer and director of Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, Robert Whitey. Hi, Robert. Hey, Jack. How are you today? Great. Well, how did you first encounter Kurt Vonnegut's work, and what was it about it that intrigued you? Well, I had a very hip English teacher in high school named Valerie Stevenson, and uh, it was actually a signed reading for a class, which is kind of shocking now when you think about it. Uh, the book was Breakfast of Champions. And we read it, and it was like, you know, falling in love. My, my immediate response was, okay, I've found my author. I, I sort of blame him for my being not as well read as I'd like to be, because for years I didn't want to hear about any other author. I found my guy, and all I wanted to do was read him and... So I just really responded to him. So thank God for Valerie Stevenson. That was it. So after Breakfast of Champions, I just kept going and read all of the things that he'd written prior to that. To the point where that was my junior year in high school. By the time I was a senior, I I was allowed to teach a class in Vonnegut. As far as the appeal, I think it was that great mix of dealing with very serious issues, but through the lens of a humorist. I mean, he was a very, very funny writer, and Breakfast of Champions is a very funny book. And once I met Kurt and we became friends, one of our favorite topics was talking about, you know, old comedy movies, the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields, both of whom were subjects of earlier films of mine. Well, your your production company is named Wyaduck, right? (laughs) Yeah, which Marx Brothers fans will recognize, will know the reference. Uh, It's a a good litmus. So I I, I really enjoyed his humor, but he was sort of the epitome of that cliche of making you laugh one moment and cry the next. And his books are very unintimidating. You know, there's that sort of spinach literature that you read because it's good for you, but it's, you know, you know you should read whatever, you know, Moby Dick, but it's kind of a slog. And, you know, you pick up a Vonnegut book and you look and you go, oh, this looks pretty easy to digest. So I think that was the other appeal. It was he's he's so entertaining and so easy to read. So it was a perfect fit. Your film is subtitled Unstuck in Time. What did Unstuck in Time mean to Vonnegut and what does it mean to you? Well, Unstuck in Time is a specific reference from his book Slaughterhouse-Five. And it refers to the protagonist, Billy Pilgrim, who is partially based on Kurt with regard to his own experiences during World War II. Like Kurt, Billy Pilgrim 
uh, is actually in Dresden, Germany, when it was firebombed by the Allies and survived by being in an underground meat locker in the slaughterhouse number five in Dresden. Uh, Vonnegut survived uh, this event, as did Billy Pilgrim. In the book, Billy Pilgrim becomes unstuck in time. He doesn't live his life in a linear fashion from infancy to old age, but he hops around in his own timeline. He goes time tripping and he might be 10 years old one minute and then an old man the next minute and then a baby the next. Vonnegut was just very intrigued by this notion of all moments existing at the same time. I think Vonnegut felt that in some ways he was unstuck in time and and you know the nature of the documentary which isn't strictly linear you know we start with Vonnegut in his later years he's on camera and then we go back to his childhood and then he's talking about his experiences during the war and his early days as a writer and then we hop back to his mother's death in the 40s so the film is sort of structured in a way that's unstuck in time and then you know i enter the film at some point and you know once i go into the film i realize I've become unstuck in time too, because there I am, you know, just after my 60th birthday, talking about making the film. And then suddenly there I am in high school, uh, you know, with my big Jufro teaching my class. And uh, then I'm reminiscing about time that we spent in the 90s. It became a very apt name for the film because it really describes the whole structure of the film and the way Vonnegut felt we live our lives. Vonnegut was often compared to Mark Twain, a comparison that maybe he cultivated. Would you agree with that assessment? Sure. I mean, they both had, you know, Midwestern roots. They even looked alike once Vonnegut grew out his, his hair and he had his bushy hair and this bushy mustache. You look at pictures of the two of them and you, you think that they could be uh, brothers. Yes. And, and Twain also dealt with very real issues about society and you know, politics, but again, filtered through this very sort of homespun Midwestern sensibility and Midwestern uh, humor. Yeah, and, and Vonnegut loved Twain and uh, actually named his first son Mark after Mark Twain. And also like Twain, Vonnegut in his later years, once the writing started to wind down, went on the public speaking circuit. Yeah, the, the, the comparison I think is very apt. And, and both strong anti-imperialists. Yes, that's for sure, yeah. The two great themes that run throughout Vonnegut's work is the nature of time, which we've talked a little bit about, and uh, the unending brutality of war. And uh, I don't know that we'll ever again have a popular novelist talk about the horror of what uh, U.S. forces did in Dresden. It's still a pretty taboo subject. Can you talk a little bit more about what was... Vonnegut's direct experience? Well, Vonnegut was taken prisoner of war during the Battle of the Bulge in the Ardennes Forest. And this was, you know, one of the greatest uh, losses of Allied lives during the entire war. The prisoners were boarded onto these trains and taken into, you know, the heart of Germany. And by luck, he wound up in Dresden, which was a beautiful city. And, and Kurt was the son and grandson of architects. So he had a keen eye for architecture and was deposited in this city that, uh, you know, his first impression was that it was Oz. He felt he was in the middle of Oz. It was a beautiful world city. It was supposed to be an open city, meaning that it would not have been an obvious military target of any kind because it served, Dresden served no military importance during the war. So everybody thought it was a safe city to be in. And lo and behold, on February 14th, 1945, the air raid sirens go off. Now, again, by luck, he and his fellow American POWs were being housed in an underground meat locker that was deep underground uh, in a slaughterhouse, uh, slaughterhouse number five. And so when the air raid sirens went off, they went underneath and heard a lot of loud noise above ground. And they came up two days later and the city was gone. The city was literally a pile of ashes. So Vonnegut and his fellow POWs were put to work by the Germans of finding bodies. Now, anybody who was above ground, there was nothing left of them. But people went into their basements, and the basements were no protection for this kind of thing. The people who were in their basements weren't burned to death. They were suffocated because the heat of the firestorm just sucked all the oxygen out of these rooms. So people were found perfectly well-preserved, you know, holding on to jewelry or 
you know, family belongings or whatever. So his job now, keep in mind, he was, I think, 22 years old during this time. Think about what uh-huh. you and I were doing at the age of 22. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, right. he at 22 was forced to pull these bodies out of these shelters and pile them up like logs and torch them and set them on, ty- on fire for sanitation purposes. So he always denied that his experience during the war had any real impact on his character, but his own kids and a lot of personal friends think he was in denial about that. I mean, how could you not be yeah. affected by that? The photos that you have in the film of Dresden, the firebombing where the, the little firebombs united into one huge bomb, it's just terrific. So this was his experience during the war. But interestingly, when he came back to the United States, to, to his home in Indianapolis, he couldn't find any coverage, any press coverage or journalistic coverage about this massacre that he had witnessed. He felt a need to write about this simply because it happened. And he said, how could this not be covered? Well, I'm going to, to write about this event simply because I was there. So again, dumb luck. And he tried to write about the firebombing of Dresden. He tried to incorporate it into his work in any number of ways and could never really get a bead on it. But it wasn't until Slaughterhouse-Five that he finally found a way to talk about his experience during the war in a way that was certainly unusual, unconventional. And it just struck with the counterculture and college students at the time who were protesting Vietnam. And Ultimately, it, it put him on the literary map and made him an overnight sensation after you know a 25-year writing career. Yeah. At one point in the film, you have a clip where Vonnegut is saying, laughing is better than crying. There's less cleaning up to do afterwards. <laughs> right. So was he crying underneath? Oh, I think there was an element of that. Yeah. I mean, he says in the film, he actually says that the, the dogs in his neighborhood growing up in Indianapolis had more to do with affecting his character than anything that happened during the war. When I relayed this to one of his daughters, Edie, she just said, oh, he's full of it. In other words, people who knew him didn't buy the idea that Dresden had no impact on him. And it wasn't just the firebombing. I mean, he was he was beaten pretty badly by the Germans and, and there's saw friends of his being killed and blown up. I mean, nobody comes out of that the same, I don't think. But um, Yes, when I knew him, he there was a there was a bit of a manic element to him. I mean, I I remember mainly the laughs. There was a lot of laughing, you know, a lot of jokes. There was a real lightness to our relationship. But he was also prone to depression, and I saw his dark moods as well. Whether he was clinically depressed, I don't know, but he he did get depressed, and when he was, there wasn't much you could do to get him out of it. It just he had to just organically work through it. So yes, there both sides were quite active with him. Vonnegut loved both you and your wife, and you even end up in one of his books. Did Vonnegut influence your outlook on life any? Yes. Vonnegut's voice is very much in my head. He's very much a part of our lives. Now, I say in the film, you know, I was single when Kurt and I started to hang out. He was always very interested in my dating life. And when I met Linda, he just adored Linda. And he told me right away, he says, no, you, you, you got to marry this one. <laughs> this one's a keeper. He's very much a part of our lives. And, you know, his artwork is all over our house and not to mention his books and all kinds of mementos of, of our, our years together. And, um, and and you wrote and produced a film of his novel, Mother Night. What, what did right. Vonnegut think of it? Uh, he was quite happy with it. And I can say that because, I mean, of course, he would tell me that. But I've, I've seen letters that he wrote to other people like Morley Safer and friends of his saying how delighted he was with the film. The film had its premiere at the Montreal International Film Festival. This was back in 96 and Kurt attended the premiere and he sat next to me. And at the opening of the film, play this kind of darkly humorous gag and Vonnegut was sitting next to me and he started cackling and laughing. I thought, okay, well, great. <laughs> that's, that's the only review I need. Great. So what's your favorite of his novels? It's hard to say. Uh, You know, Breakfast of Champions holds a place in my heart because it was my first. (laughs) Sirens of Titan, I think, is an amazing Mm -hmm. uh, book. You know, Cat's Cradle, any number of them. It's hard to say that I have a favorite. But what's interesting is that the books that he wrote prior to Slaughterhouse-Five, which is in 69, these were essentially like pulp fiction paperbacks that you'd find on those revolving racks and bus depots and 
in drugstores. It was only after Slaughterhouse-Five became a hit that they went back and reissued those books and then they sold. So it's amazing to think you could write a book like Sirens of Titan or Cat's Cradle or even Player Piano and still be a struggling writer who had to take other jobs. He became a sob salesman at one point, you know, a car salesman. He always had to have a teaching job. You know, you write Cat's Cradle and you're, you know, what have you got to do to (laughs) to (laughs) earn your marks as a writer? It's it's really remarkable. But of course, ultimately he he made up for it and, and, you know, everything he wrote after that became a bestseller. Do you think Kurt Vonnegut still has something to say to this current generation? Oh, very much so. Boy, yeah, his voice is still so pertinent today. And almost to the point, I mean, there's a sort of prescience to a lot of things he says, where you think, how did he see this coming way back then? He seems to be talking about events that we're living through right now. Absolutely, things that he wrote about and things that he spoke about are entirely relevant today. Where would a Vonnegut virgin begin? What book would you recommend? I tend to recommend Cat's Cradle. Hmm. That was my first. Yeah, because it sort of has all the things that you love about Vonnegut. Again, very easy to read, short chapters. It's a funny book. It's a serious book. It's basically a comedy about the end of the world. I think it's a good place to, to start. And if you read Cat's Cradle and you go, eh, then he's probably not for you. But chances uh-huh. are, if you're a young person who reads Cat's Cradle, he'll do what I did. And you'll go out and buy every Vonnegut book you can get your hands on. Yeah, it's definitely a good test. Well, as we wrap up, Robert, what's the most important thing you know about Kurt Vonnegut? Well, it's so funny because when I started reading his books, I just thought of him as a wonderful author. But I thought of his body of work. And then the day would come where I'd think of him primarily as, as a friend. You know, it was an honor for me to meet somebody whose work I admired so much. You know, there's that old adage, which is you don't want to meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed. Well, that certainly wasn't the case with Vonnegut. I met one of my heroes. He became a lifelong friend, one of my closest friends. I consider that an honor and a privilege. So I'm left with just a lot of great memories. And every now and then when I still pick up a Vonnegut book and I still get that charge from it, I think, wow, my friend wrote this. And it's a it's a great feeling to be left with. Thanks so much, Robert Whitey, writer and director of Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time. It certainly has inspired me to go to my bookshelf and reread Vonnegut's novels again. The film is an extremely personal look at a great and funny writer and his influence on a younger writer and director. Thanks, Bob Whitey. Thanks, Jack. It was a pleasure. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Hi, Bob. This is Kurt. I want to thank you for your friendship. Love you. Can you just do that line one more time? Up your ass. What the fuck do you Bob, I look forward to seeing you on Thursday. The author, Kurt Vonnegut, has died. So it goes. And now, eminent British actor Ian McKellen reads a letter to high school students in 2006, written to them by Kurt Vonnegut, in connection with an assignment to write to their favorite authors. November 5th, 2006. Dear Xavier High School and Miss Lockwood, and Messrs. Perrin, McFeely, Batten, Mora, and Congista, I thank you for your friendly letters. You sure know how to cheer up a really old geezer, 84 in his sunset years. I don't make public appearances anymore because I now resemble nothing so much as an iguana. What I had to say to you, moreover, would not take long. To wit, practice any art, music, singing, dancing, acting, drawing, painting, sculpture, poetry, fiction, essays, reportage, no matter how well or badly, not to get money and fame, but to experience becoming, to find out what's inside you, 
to make your soul grow. Seriously, I mean, starting right now, do art and do it for the rest of your lives. Draw a funny or nice picture of Miss Lockwood and give it to her. <laughs> Dance home after school and sing in the shower and on and on. Make a face in your mashed potatoes. <laughs> Pretend you're Count Dracula. Here's an assignment for tonight, and I hope Miss Lockwood will flunk you if you don't do it. Write a six-line poem about anything but rhymed. No fair tennis without a net. Make it as good as you possibly can, but don't tell anybody what you're doing. Don't show it or recite it to anybody, not even your girlfriend or parents or whatever, or Miss Lockwood, okay? Tear it up into teeny-weeny pieces and discard them into widely separated trash receptacles. You will find that you have already been gloriously rewarded for your poem. You have experienced becoming, learned a lot more about what's inside you, and you have made your soul grow. God bless you all. Kurt Vonnegut. And Vonnegut was the only author among all of them to reply. Yeah, hey, John Savage. If you're, if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Prairie Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with actress Melissa Leo in a conversation about two of her current films, Ida Red and Untitled Katie Holmes Project. But Leo's perhaps most compelling performance was her Oscar-nominated turn in Frozen River in 2008 as a financially struggling rural single mother desperate for an income after her husband leaves with the money meant for a new trailer home and her character then joining a First Nation immigrant smuggling group operating where she lives along the Canadian border. And as we also discuss Ida Red, in which she plays another outlaw, and with more than meets the eye as well. While we talk surviving poverty, Vietnam, tattoos, and getting into character for Ida Red by camping out cross-country on the way to the movie set in Tulsa. First, a look back at Frozen River, then Melissa Leo. Where's Daddy? Probably in Atlantic City by now. He's gambling away the money for our house. Are we even going to look for him? with my car. Had the keys in it. The guy driving it got on a bus. I got a friend who might buy that. It's not for sale. He's a smuggler. He'll pay more than it's worth. I'm not driving just anybody across the border. It's a crime. There's no border here. This is free trade between nations. Not the border patrol. I'm not going to stop you. You're white. This is about the woman that was with you. She's known to have brought illegal aliens into the country. You can't come up with a cash. You have lost your $1,500 deposit. I can get a job, you know. You're going to school. I 
just need one more run to get the double. And then I'm out of this. There's only 600 here. You want to make a change now? I want the rest. You're gonna get us all killed. I don't want any trouble from him, Lila. We have a situation with a couple of smugglers. Did they do something? I'm just directing you to step out of the vehicle. <laughs> Troopers want somebody. My kid's got no one but me. What are you gonna do? I didn't know any other way to keep us together. Hello and welcome. Oh, thank you so very much. I am delighted to be at BAI. My mom used to listen to BAI when I was a kid growing up in the city. And it's appreciated. Oh, good. Cool. <laughs> what was it about Ida Red that led you to be part of it? The filmmaker, John Swab. Um, the history there is that he had come to me with his... Um, not his first feature, but the first one I'd known of, uh, Run with the Hunted. And I really objected to the woman he had drawn on the page there and what he was asking her, what responsibility she was asking her to bear. And the movie wasn't about her, but she was going to bear the brunt of the ugly responsibility. And I was like, that's just not fair, man. Like, make the movie about her or have some dude be responsible for it but that's just it had to do with prostitution of young women and i'm like i don't i can't i i'll anyway i think removed the woman from the film and went ahead and 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 made it and then he came back to me by god with a film called body brokers and i played a very small part of a counselor um in a drug rehab in a fascinating film um that john made um about the whole uh, insurance and drug rehab scandal that's going on in this country right now today. Um, And then he came to me with Ida Red. Well, by now, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm a a part of a filmmaker's gang, Mm. you know? And that's why I went and did it. Um, And what I realized doing it is that this respect and adoration that the other characters have for her, um, some adore her, some just simply respect and fear her, um, it's just so rare that a part for a woman of my age and so on is is respected in that way. I'm usually the most disrespected in the script. Now, I'd have read she's somewhat of an enigma, as we mostly see her on the visitor's phone in the prison. So what can you say about who she is and what motivates her? For instance, what does her acquired middle name Red stand for? She's a redhead. Um, I think her husband's called her Red a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, what I think Ida Red is. And at one point she's described as, quote, a female Jimmy Hoffa around there the only person to unionize all the different crews when she needs to. What is that all about? Well, I don't know if I know enough about Jimmy Hoffa to get in bed with that idea, but I think she is a powerful player in the local Oklahoma crime scene. I think she's been a powerful player for a long time. I don't think she's the wife of a powerful player. I think she is the widow of a guy who went along with her strength. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of motivation, it's also said at one point that your husband, quote, came back from war and had nothing when he returned, and assuming it was the Vietnam War. What are your thoughts about that and how it led to a life of crime for the family? Well, I'm really glad you pick up on that, Prairie, because it's very important. I think that this family, which there's a a fair amount of discussion about not having to do this anymore, and there's also a fair amount of observation of it's a little hard to stop once you've started it, right? So so it really is the sentence you've hit on, which I think is only mentioned that one time, Mm. is that thing that disenfranchises 
Ida's family. And because maybe as a youngster, she was a little bit like that young daughter of hers and just was kind of good at shenanigans, um, that that then is a way for them to make a living. And God knows everybody's got to make a living. And so that there was in time post-Vietnam when this family got broken and had to find a way up out of it. And so they made a choice that might not have been the first choice. And on another note, speaking of hard times then and now, looking back on your 2008 film for which you received an Oscar nomination, Frozen River, what are your thoughts about the economic struggling mother you played and struggle that we still see today? Well, I have to tell you something, Prairie. When we showed Frozen River at that beautiful theater up on the Upper West Side, I think it's actually closed now, um, that used to go downstairs into, um, a woman raised her hand at the end of the film and said, I'm sorry, but people don't live like that in the state of New York. (laughs) And the, the rest of the New Yorkers were like, oh, my God. Yeah. What's this woman? What rock is this woman living under? Yeah. And that it is, it's it's not the the that it's not the cross section of society that we that we see. Certainly not where women are concerned. Um, and and that there is there's disenfranchised people that look all kinds of ways in the United States of America, and I would say that the largest population by my observation, by my traveling around the United States of America working, is disenfranchised. Hmm. And that's where we're at. And what is the Untitled Katie Holmes Project all about, and what are you up to in the film? Oh, that was so sweet. Katie asked me to come and play the mother of a young man she meets in the film. Um, And and then, uh, yeah, it's really just a couple of little scenes here and there to to sort of, uh, yeah, give a little background to the tale. Um, And, uh, yeah, so it was a delight to work with her. She is one of the most pleasant, straightforward people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And I wish her all the best with that little film, sweet little film about she and a fellow during COVID. And what are your memories of receiving the Oscar as Best Supporting Actress from Kirk Douglas for The Fighter in 2010? Yeah, you just named the biggest memory of all. Very complicated winning an Oscar for this old girl. I just, it's not something I was well prepared for. It's not something that I had dreamt of. Um, it's, it's wonderful, the recognition uh, by my peers. I can now call other actors my peers. Um, those those kinds of things, but as as you ask me the question and you bring up Mr. Douglas's name, to stand on a stage with Kirk Douglas, man, <laughs> that was the best of it. Yeah. <laughs> and getting back to playing the title character Ida Red, what intrigued you about her, and how did you go about getting inside her head to play Ida Red? Well, there's a couple of things I'll tell you. One is that, that first of all, we shot it 2020, summer 2020. It was one of the first films to shoot once the COVID protocols had been set, right? Mm. And so uh, John had been just really meticulous about finding out what the protocols were, by my understanding, involved in some of the meetings, creating the protocols. And so um, I didn't want to get on an airplane, and I have a camper. And so I hopped in my camper and I slowly drove myself out to Oklahoma from my home in New York. Um, It's a wonderful way to prepare for a role. I'm away from home. I have a very limited environment of my little camper. Um, I would hop out and put gas in and I would hop out and, you know, check into a campground. And otherwise, it was just me and the camper. And when I arrived in Tulsa, I realized it was not a time in the country that I felt comfortable staying in the nicest hotel in in Tulsa. Um, There was some, uh, well, other people there. Um, And I didn't. So I went back to the camper. And while we shot, I stayed in the camper. And I realized it was a great preparation for her. I often do this. I sort of make these choices in my life 
um, that end up being really for the character. So my camper is small, and and um, while in there waiting for my shooting days, um, I realized I needed to put some tattoos on me. Mm-hmm. I have a little somewhere of me drawing these tattoos on myself that actually play really beautifully in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ida has a, a, a tattooed uh, wedding band because in my mind, she had had her wedding band taken from her um, by the, the uh, prison, and so she tattooed a prison tattoo of a wedding band because even the husband's dead, she'll be married to him forever in her mind. And I also tattooed all three of the kids' names on my inner arm. You can see it in one moment in the movie. You probably miss it the first time viewing, but you'd see it the second time. So all three of the kids' names are listed there. The third and youngest child was born in prison, so it's a prison tattoo. Mm. All of those things are, are activities that I busy myself with to get me in her mind space. Mm. And what for you is the biggest high and thrill of acting? To be somebody else. To literally walk in someone else's shoes whether they're good people or bad people or stupid people or smart people, to have that experience of being other. I think it makes me a better person. Okay, thank you so much, Melissa Leo, for calling in. Oh, thank you so, so much, Perry. You take care. Good talking to you again. Bye. And Ida Red is out now theatrically and online. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.